Good morning, everyone. It is very exciting to be back. I've just returned from a two-week trip to Zambia and Ethiopia, where I traveled with Doug Hayes and my son, Liam. Uh, I want to thank you for sending me on that trip, and I want to thank you for praying for me. I was keenly aware of uh, the church's prayers for us on this trip. We had an amazing week and really experienced the partnership that we have uh, in these countries through Sovereign Grace. We spent time with Covenant Mercy's staff and the staff of Lighthouse Christian School. We saw the opening of their new building, which is something that we as a church have participated in for many years. Even, even Liam was recognizing, uh, he was saying, Dad, in VBS, we used to raise money for Lighthouse Christian School, for, for putting these different aspects. And here he was seeing the result of that and the partnership that we have. On, on that Saturday, uh, Doug and I spent time with about 25 pastors from the area there, uh, two pastors who drove from Malawi. And when I say they drove, they spent 48 hours on a bus, not like a Greyhound bus, but a, a bus on dirt roads. They spent 48 hours. They said it was a very arduous journey just to be with us there for the weekend. And we were able to teach on the sh seven shared values of sovereign grace and begin to engage these men in partnership. These pastors were men that Pastor Will Broadchanda had discipled uh, as the pastor there of and, um, and since he has died, these men have taken on that call and continued on with the Copper Belt Pastors College and continued to uh, lead the church. And then Liam and I traveled to Ethiopia where I taught at Trinity Fellowship Pastors College in Addis Ababa. And um, this was just such a treat to be with these 10 men who are being trained to be pastors and church planters there in Addis. Um, they have had a difficult year because there was uh, a war there, uh, some rebels that were coming against the government, and many of their professors had to cancel their travels. And so I was the first professor to be there since October. And it was just a wonderful time of fellowship. God blessed uh, the time of teaching and built our relationships. Liam and I had a chance to lead some worship with the guys, which was the first time we had done that together for a group, which was my highlight from the trip. So with all of this, I let them know uh, about your affection and your support for them, our commitment as a church to see the gospel going forward and to be partnered with them. And so I want to thank you again uh, for your care and love and support in this. If you would open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days 
Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the good life. The good life has been the pursuit of humanity for the ages. It's a topic that can dive into the greatest depths of the meaning of life, or it can be the subject of bubblegum pop in your headphones. Aristotle argued that the good life was the pursuit of happiness. You can look up and read articles on how to use the hashtag good life to increase your Instagram or your TikTok following. And in the music world, there's a wide range of artists who jump in. One Republic, Kanye West, g Easy, Weezer, even Tony Bennett and Billy Joel sing a duet about the good life. And the reason is because... Aristotle was right. The key to happiness is understanding the good life. And the good life is what Peter is addressing here in verse 8. He begins with this word, finally, and that's because he's concluding this section that started in chapter 213 about how Christians should live out their relationships in a broken world. Over the last several Sundays, we've looked at Peter's specific direction to citizens, to servants, to wives, to husbands, and so now he, said, he is summarizing how, how all Christians, he says in verse 8, all of you should live in community together and in the world. He's giving general direction on what a good Christian life is like, what it looks like to live the good life as we relate to one another as Christians and what it looks like to relate to the world in its fallen state. Now, Peter writes to us to remind us of our calling in God because in our sinful state, we lose a godly definition of what it is to live the good life. The problem that we face is that we are naturally inclined away from love. Rather than living in unity and sympathy and love and tenderness and humility, we tend toward being proud and argumentative, defensive, self-preserving, and more concerned for ourselves than we are for others. We're tempted to follow the rule of the world that says you have to get your own. If someone fights dirty, you have to show them who's the boss. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. If someone insults you, you assert yourself and you clearly put them in their place. The only way to fight evil is with its own weapon. If you're reviled, revile back and restore your position and dignity. But the word of God comes to us through Peter, much as it did through Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, and says, let me show you a more excellent way. There's a better way to live life, to live the good life, a life that rises above sin and oppression in the world, that in the face of injustice and mistreatment, there, there is one who has gone before us, Jesus our Savior. He loved as no one ever loved before. He endured hardship and trial. He faced opposition and injustice, and he did it not with some steely, gritted teeth endurance, but he did it with joy-filled 
motivation. He did it with happy submission. He did it with exuberant forgiveness. He did it with love, love for God, his father, and love for other people. He lived life as it was intended to be by God, the good life, a life of righteousness, faith, goodness, joy, and trusting God in every circumstance. Jesus lived the good life and received God's blessing. And Jesus calls Christians, he calls us as Christians to live the good life as well and to experience God's blessing because God will bless you as you turn away from evil and do good. So I titled this message, The Blessings and Hardships of the Good Life. Now that might seem wrong right from the beginning, right? Why not just the blessings of the good life, Joseph? I mean, that's what the good life is, isn't it? Blessings without hardship. If not success and notoriety, at least happiness and no pain, right? So what is the good life, biblically speaking? Well, Peter here is telling us that the good life is living in the Lord. In verse 12, he says, The eyes of the Lord are upon us, and his ears are listening to our prayers. The good life is grounded in God, established in God, so it's ultimately a life of strength and security. As Psalm 18, 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. But that doesn't mean that the good life is an easy thing. The Gospel Transformation Bible says the good life is the hard life of trust in Christ through which we can quietly endure all things. Though Christ is our security, we still live in a fallen world. We still face heart aches and heart breaks and sickness and death and mistreatment and injustice. Remember that our series here in 1 Peter is called Living Hope for Life as exiles. We are still exiles from this world and pilgrims on the path to God's eternal kingdom. It's hard to trust God when life delivers difficulty to us, but as we love God and live in obedience to him, even our hardships take on a different meaning, and we find that the life lived for God is where we find true happiness in this life and fullness of joy in the next. Owen Strachan and Doug Sweeney put it this way. At its deepest, most profound level, the good life is the life lived for the glory of God. Those who display and image the beauty of God will in whatever circumstance they find themselves experience happiness that comes directly from God himself. Happiness then is not a state outside of ourselves that we must strive for. It does not ebb and flow with our life situation. Happiness is doing the will of God for the will of God always yields the glory of God. And what is the will of God? It is God's revealed purposes and desires in the Bible. In short, the good life is the existence that takes shape according to the teachings and commands of Scripture. When one obeys God, By loving his son and following his word, one glorifies the Lord and tastes the sweetest, richest happiness known to man. This and no other substitute is the good life. This is what God has always intended for mankind. And so here in Peter, we're going to look at three aspects of the good life. The good life is a life of love, 
The good life is a counterintuitive life, and the good life is a life of blessing. So our first point, the good life is a life of love. As we look at verse 8, we see that Peter lists out five characteristics of the Christian life. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just representative of a life lived for God's glory. It's an outline of a loving, gracious life toward others in regard to how we think about others and how we feel toward others. These are characteristics that are behind the fellowship of the church that we heard about two weeks ago when Brian Davis was here and preached from Acts chapter 2 about living our lives together in community with one another. In verse 8, Peter says that this fellowship is marked by a unity of mind. A unity of mind. That word here also means to live harmoniously with one another, holding together a common belief in the teachings of Scripture. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And letting this common gospel blend our individual diversity into a rich unity. When we, when we hear vocalists sing together, a single voice carries the melody. And then we add in alto and soprano and tenor. We're not only increasing the number of voices, but we create a chord. And it fills our ears with richness and a fuller blended sound. That's the picture here. Unity of mind, a harmony of belief in life together. The next characteristic is sympathy, having a compassion for one another. There's a sense of mutual care and concern for one another. It's what Romans 12 means when it says rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Third is brotherly love. And this seems to be intentionally positioned as the central characteristic of the five that are listed. It's this love that fuels each of the others. And this characteristic should be particularly dear to our hearts, as the original word here is Philadelphia, where our city of brotherly love gets its name. But this idea is not just some common identity or brotherhood based around affection for a city or shared sports teams. No, this is the unique love that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ. Look around you. Look at the people sitting with you. Here are those who have been ransomed, as Peter says in chapter 118, or purchased not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Edmund Clowney says, like these other graces, brotherly love is specifically Christian. It's not simply a sense of comradeship, but the knowledge that we have been given new birth. We are children of the Heavenly Father, and therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we have been loved by God, so we must love our fellow believers. The good life is a life that is centered on love, a love for God and brotherly love toward each other. Verse 8 goes on to mention a tender heart. A tender heart. Now this is based on the Greek word spanglichnon, which literally means the spleen or the intestines. That means the, the place of your deepest inward affections, where your feelings are stirred. 
Last week when I was in Ethiopia, my class was teaching me different words in their native language of Amharic. And they said a phrase of deep affection that might express love of an engaged couple or a married couple was, Ka'anjeri no miwadish. means, I love you from my intestines. So, yes. So, gentlemen, try that out tomorrow on Valentine's Day. My love. I love you deeply from my intestines. Here it's not a romantic expression, but it is an emotional one. We are to live our lives with deep-felt, tender-heartedness toward each other, willing to endure with each other, willing to support one another, to accept one another, to be patient with one another. William Harrell says, This tender-heartedness breeds within us patience, which we lovingly exercise, especially when others manifest their faults or grow in grace more slowly than we think they should be doing. Especially when others manifest their faults or grow in grace more slowly than we think they should be doing. That kind of tender-hearted patience is a divine patience. And it's something that we need from one another. Now, since part of my self-proclaimed pastoral obligation to all of you is to build in you a healthy appreciation for John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, I will once again illustrate from it. Many of you are familiar of the first part of Pilgrim's Progress, the story of Christian on his journey and the path of salvation to the celestial city. But Bunyan also published a second part in which Christian's wife, Christiana, takes the same journey with her children and a friend. And where the first part is a picture of salvation for an individual, Christiana's story is a picture of the church as they are led by a knight named Mr. Greatheart who serves as their pastor. And their group is joined by many other oddly named travelers along the way. One story is of Mr. Fearing, a man who, though saved, was irrationally depressed and fearful over his salvation so that Greatheart said of him, I never had doubt about him. He was a man of choice spirit, only he was always kept very low. And that made his life so burdensome to himself and so troublesome to others. When they destroy Doubting Castle, they rescue other Christians with such unflattering names as Mr. Despondency and his daughter Much Afraid. They're joined by Mr. Ready to Halt, who traveled on crutches and made very slow progress. And when they meet a man named Feeble Mind, they invite him to join them, but he objects, saying that he would not be able to keep up. It is with me as it is with a weak man among the strong, or as a sick man among the healthy, so I do not know what to do. But then we see the tenderness of Mr. Greatheart when he replies, But brother... I have in commission to comfort the feeble-minded and to support the weak. You must needs go along with us. We will wait for you. We will lend you our help. We will deny ourselves some of the things, both opinionative and practical, for your sake. We will not enter into doubtful disputations before you. We will be made all things to you. Rather, 
then you shall be left behind. Brothers and sisters, we are to be tender-hearted toward one another, a heart moved to be patient with others rather than that they would be left behind. Consider the people in your life. Where do you need to slow down and to wait for them? To extend patience to them when they manifest their faults or show slow growth. And let us each take time. Let's take time to also express gratitude. Thankfulness both to God and to others who have shown patience to us. Who have shown patience to you when your faults have been on display and when you have been slow to change. Thank God for the grace of brotherly love and tender heartedness. The good life is a life of tender hearted love. And our tender hearts are to be matched with humble minds. Now, this is not, this is not thinking highly of ourselves, not being easily offended or insulted, not, but deferring to others and serving others. And this lesson of humility is one that Peter himself had learned with difficulty. Consider some of the ways that he was humbled. Matthew 14, he steps out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus only to sink as his fears overtake him. He's the first disciple to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. And then in the next verses, he tries to talk Jesus out of going to the cross, only to have Jesus say, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. Saying to Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, even if they all fall away, I will not. And yet he denies Jesus three times and is left humiliated and weeping bitterly. Peter knew what it was to have his pride humbled and he calls us to have humble minds. Through this, he learned brotherly love and tenderheartedness that led him to live in unity with others and he calls us to the same. So where have you been tempted? Where have you been proud toward others? Where have you been expressing your opinion, whether on spiritual things or politics or life decisions, in a way that lacks love or compassion? Where has your heart been hardened toward a brother or sister in Christ because you think them wrong or you feel offended by them? John Calvin warns us, wisely then does Peter bid us to be humble-minded, lest pride and hardness should lead us to despise our neighbors. Let's not be led by pride. Let's not despise our neighbors, but may we seek to live the good life as a life of love. Our second point is that the good life is a counterintuitive life. The good life is a counterintuitive life. Verse 8 points to the characteristics of the Christian life, but verse 9 discusses what they look like in action. The actions of verse 9 are the fruit of verse 8, but they're contrary to the ways that the world or the natural inclinations of our hearts. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, Peter has already pointed us to Jesus' example of this in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. 
He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Okay, so this is where I feel the need to have that humble mind that we just talked about because I am so easily offended. I am so quick to lash out when I feel disrespected or insulted. When someone speaks harshly or offensively to us, our instinct is one of self-defense. Block the attack and counterattack. You put me down and you will be put down. That's the natural sinful inclination of our hearts. But the good life is a counterintuitive life. It goes against our natural sin nature, or as verse 9 says, on the contrary. Wait, hold on, stop your sinful instinctive response. Restrain yourself before you act in a way that seems natural and self-preserving because God's word is going to directly contradict that instinct And guide you the way that you should go. You're not to answer reviling for reviling. Stop yourself. Check yourself. Follow in Christ's steps. And bless. 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 You mean instead of insulting, instead of answering in anger, instead of defending my honor, bless the person who's insulting me? Yes. Bless. This is the counterintuitive nature of the good life. It's not a life of revenge or vengeance. It's not a life of self-preservation and defensiveness. It is a supernatural life of counterintuitive love and obedience to God. It is not a path of an easy life, but it is the path of a happy life. This is the good life. And so Peter, in verse 10, then begins to quote Psalm 34 verses 12 to 16, as the basis for this counterintuitive formula to life. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. In essence, do you want to live a long and happy life? Do you want to live the good life? The answer for all of us is what? Yes, yes, I want to live a long and happy life. How do I do this? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Remarkably, living the good life has much to do with the words that come out of your mouth. The words that come out of my mouth. We are not to let evil words or lies have a place on our lips. Not to let gossip or slander or defaming of someone's character be a part of our speech habits. We're not to exaggerate or speak in a way that makes others look worse than they are or take more credit than we deserve or mislead others to their harm and detriment. Holy living means being very careful with our words. Not lashing out at people, even if they have lashed out at us. Not cursing others, not mocking, not seeing, seeking their demise or destruction. But Psalm 34 goes on to also say what we should do. Not only to turn away from evil, but do good. Active pursuit of good blessing others, benefiting others. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now we see this exemplified in the life of the author of Psalm 34, King David. At the beginning of 
Psalm 34, there's a short introduction that tells us that this psalm was written about a period of time that's recorded in 1 Samuel 18 to 26. And during that time, David was under heavy affliction and trial. In fact, King Saul, who should have been his ally, was seeking to kill him. His life was threatened many times. Saul tried to kill David with a spear in 1 Samuel 18. In chapter 19, he tries to kill David in three separate occasions. And then in 1 Samuel 24, David gets his chance, his chance for revenge. He was hiding in a cave, and Saul came into that cave without knowing that David was there. And even though he had the chance, out of his obedience to God, David would not allow his men to kill Saul. And then again in 1 Samuel 26, David sneaks into Saul's camp at night. He stands over Saul's bed while he's sleeping, and he has another chance to kill him. Now understand, David has been on the run from this man. He's been forced away from his home, away from his family. He's living in exile. Sound familiar? He is being sorely mistreated. He turns away from evil and does good. He seeks peace and pursues it, and God blesses him for it. In fact, when David reveals to Saul that he spared his life, Saul himself says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Isn't the Bible so consistent? You've declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. David lives out his obedience to God and the Lord blesses him. Now, I feel the need to make a comment here in regards to situations of uh, abuse. I believe that God calls us to remove ourselves from situations of abuse when we are, it is in our power to do so. It would be wrong to remain under abuse because of a false sense that it is our spiritual calling to remain in it. Jesus tells us to flee persecution in Matthew 10, 23. The Apostle Paul fled when his life was in danger in Acts 9.25. And even David did not remain with Saul when he was trying to kill him. He ran. He sought escape and safety. And he trusted God for the hardships of that. The point was that he did not take vengeance on his enemy. If you're here today and you're facing physical or sexual harm at the hands of someone else, please Get help and remove yourself from that situation. Talk to the authorities. Talk to one of the pastors, a community group leader, or a friend. Get yourself physically safe, and God will meet you with healing and with tender care. But as we said, David lived out this counterintuitive obedience to God, and the Lord blessed him. It was not easy, but it led to great happiness and blessing, and God will bless you as you turn away from evil and do good. Jesus teaches this same counterintuitive love in Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, love 
your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Love your enemies and do good, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We are to bless and not curse. We are to be kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We are to pray for those who abuse and mistreat. We are to love and forgive, not because it's easy, but because it will lead to real happiness in God. And nowhere is this more clearly demonstrated than in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. On the day of his crucifixion, Jesus was unjustly condemned and most horribly mistreated. He was abandoned by his friends, among whom Peter was the closest. He was arrested and beaten and spat upon and cursed and mocked, and it wasn't for his sins. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 23, Pilate says three times that Jesus is without guilt. Herod says the same. The thief on the cross says Jesus was done nothing wrong. And when he dies, the centurion declares, surely this man was innocent. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for the sins of the world. He died for your sins and he died for my sins. He was crowned with thorns and lashed with whips and forced to carry his cross on our behalf to redeem us. And in the midst of his suffering and his mistreatment, after they had nailed his hands and nailed his feet to the cross and they hung him up, Jesus did not repay evil for evil. He did not return reviling for reviling, but on contrary, he blessed Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's stunning. It's breathtaking. It, how can it be? What depths of love? Not only was Christ being the perfect example of not reviling, but blessing. Not only was he counteracting and living counterintuitively to the entire force of the fallen human heart, not only was he appealing for the forgiveness of his persecutors, his enemies, he was shedding his own blood to forgive us and empower us, empower us to forgive as well. He did it to give us the grace to live the good life, a life of true happiness entrusting ourselves to God. Owen Strachan and Doug Sweeney again say, Jesus Christ, despite all the injustices thrust upon him, was the happiest person who ever lived. Christ devoted every second of his life to serving God and blessing his people. Though we often face great trials, Jesus knew a satisfaction that no human hand could diminish. Even in his agonizing crucifixion, Jesus rested firmly on the will of God and endured the agonies of Calvary as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him. Though the cross itself produced no happiness in Jesus, submission to God's will did. Your trial may not produce any happiness in you, but submitting to God's will, walking humbly and obediently, will produce great happiness. 
Jesus did it for the joy set before him. He endured the cross to empower us to live the good life for his glory. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I recently read about this, the transformative power of Christ in this way and how it was dramatically displayed in the life of Mitsuo Fukushida. At 5.30 a.m. on December 7th of 1942, Air Commander Mitsuo Fukushida piloted his plane from the deck of a Japanese aircraft carrier and he served as the squadron leader for the 359 planes that attacked Pearl Harbor. After surviving the war, including two plane crashes and having his ship sunk by a bomb, he bought a farm and he began to try to recover a normal life. Though he was not a religious man, as he continued to work in the earth, he became convinced that there was a creator. And he felt shame over his previous godless views that a man's power and ability were his only trustworthy guides. He came to the conclusion that human beings should try to live at peace with one another. All the nations living at peace together. He decided to write a book, No More Pearl Harbors. But he had trouble finishing the book because he couldn't figure out what kind of a man could lead all the nations to this world of peace. Then one day at the train station in Tokyo, he was given a track tracked with the startling title, I Was a Prisoner of Japan by American Sergeant Jacob DeShazer. DeShazer told the story of being at Pearl Harbor and how his hatred of the Japanese began on that dreadful day. He participated in the American bombing of Tokyo and he illegally fired upon a civilian fishing boat. When his plane went down, he was captured and sent to a POW camp where he was subjected to torture in retaliation for his war crime of firing on civilians. While in that situation, he obtained a Bible, and after weeks of intensely reading it, he came to Christ. And the change of his attitude was noticed by his prison guards who wondered at the power of the book that he was reading. After the war, returned to America, went to Bible college, and then went back to Japan as a missionary to bring salvation to a people that he had once hated. As Mitsuo Fukushida read this testimony, he said, I could not understand such enemy-forgiving love. I had never heard of returning good for evil. I desired even more to discover the source of this power that could remove hatred from the hearts of people and change them into friendly, loving individuals. As he read the Bible, he came upon Jesus' statement in Luke twenty-three thirty: Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there he found the source and power of forgiveness. Jesus praying for his own executioners and sacrificing his life on their behalf. Mitsuo came to faith in Christ and spent years living the good life, participating in evangelistic projects with Billy Graham and leading the sky pilots of Japan to evangelize Japanese boys to become the pillars of the church and the school and the home. Out of war and intense hatred, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings forgiveness and grace to live for Christ's glory alone, a life of happiness and blessing. So who are your enemies today? Who is God calling you to do good to, to seek peace and pursue it? Is it a boss that you're at odds with, or a neighbor that you become bitter with, or you feel disrespected by, or your spouse, or a child, or 
maybe even your parent, who are you called to pray for and to bless when you are mistreated? Can you trust Christ to be there for you? He forgave his enemies, including you and me, and he's poured out goodness and salvation on us so that we too can live the good life. It's counterintuitive, but it's joy-giving and leads to a life of blessing. So very quickly, our last point is a life of blessing. The good life is a life of blessing. And what does that mean? Verse 12, as we saw earlier, says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. There is no greater blessing than to know that the Lord cares for us. There is no greater blessing than to know that he watches over us for our protection. And he loves us and he listens and responds to our prayers. This is the blessing that comes through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 tells us that we have been called to this blessing in Jesus Christ. And because we have the assurance of his blessing in the life to come and the assurance of his constant presence with us in this life, we can humbly submit ourselves to his will and bless others, even those who mistreat us. Verse 12 goes on in further assurance and says that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When we bless those who treat us wrongly, we're not simply overlooking injustice or mistreatment. We're not letting evil people get away with evil deeds. We are believing God's promise that he is against evil, that he will not allow it to prosper. Even if there are times and circumstances where it seems like evil people are getting the upper hand. We see it in the headlines. Seems there are men of power and wealth or politicians with positions and connections, world leaders who oppress and murder or even just every, everyday people who take advantage of others and harm them. But verse 12 assures us that the Lord will not let injustice stand. He will oppose and do away with wickedness. Sometimes we will see wickedness fall and be overturned in this life. But if not in this life, God will right every wrong and bring justice to bear and wipe away every tear in the life to come. Christian, the eyes of the Lord are on you. His ears are open to your prayers. This is the blessing of the good life. Not life lived for ourselves, but life lived for the glory of God. Pastor and hip-hop artist Trip Lee explores this theme in his 2014 album entitled The Good Life. It's worth listening to as a full meditation on these same truths that we're seeing here. In speaking on the good life, Tripoli says, to live is not wealth. To live is not worldly success. To live is not sex. To live is not family. To live is Christ. We are created by Jesus and for Jesus, the merciful Savior who stood in our place and offers us life anew. Jesus is our mediator before the Father, the motivation for all our decisions and the driving force behind our every move. It's all about Jesus. As long as I believed the lies the culture told me, I wasn't living the good life. But when I began to live by faith in the good God, my good life began. The man who lives for himself gains nothing lasting in this life and he'll only experience devastating loss in the next. But the man who lives for Christ gets a taste of the good life now. And his death only brings him what he desires most. 
a taste of the good life now and our greatest desire in the life to come. Christ is ours today and forevermore. This is the good life. Christ is ours. To know Christ, to know him in his suffering, to know him in his glory, to know him as the good shepherd, to know him as our heavenly father and as the king of kings and lord of lords, to know him as our consistent companion, to know his steadfast love and his mercies enduring forever, to know that he does not treat us as our sins deserve and that he has a reward for us, to know that he sustains us in our being and in our faith moment by moment, to live a life of love, a counterintuitive life, a life of blessing. This is the good life, to know Christ is ours forever. Amen.